Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For the big federal contracts on the horizon in 2024, not a whole lot is changing when it comes to what the government plans to buy. But there are still a lot of opportunities for contractors as agencies recompete some of their biggest buying vehicles. Those are some of the takeaways from Deltec's annual list of top contracting opportunities. Ashley Sanderson is a senior research manager at Deltec, and she joins us now to talk more about the 2024 edition. Ashley, thanks for joining us. And, and before we delve into some of the top opportunities that you all identified this year, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the trends that you talk about in the report as well. Starting with overall contracting spend, what have you been seeing over the last several years as you've examined the data? So contracting spend has gone, it went down in 2021, as we saw, um, but it has been growing. We do not know contract spend history in a full view right now for fiscal year 2023 because of the delay of DOD reporting. So that'll be out at the end of December. Um, but what we do see is that there is some growth from fiscal year 2021 into fiscal year 2022. I think we're spending roughly a little under 700 billion in contract spend for fiscal year 2022. The importance of that is it kind of helps us have an idea of what we're looking at for the coming fiscal year. And if there's more contract spend, there tends to be more activity, there's less delays, less slows, less cancellation of requirements because it seems like they're spending. Um, this year may be interesting because we are going in under continuing resolution. Um, we also have what's coming up in January and February. So um, I would predict despite the spending boating pretty well for fiscal year 2024, that it's not going to be immediate. It's probably going to be a slow uptick. Yeah. And to that point, there are so many unknowns about the coming fiscal year. It would be unwise to make two specific predictions about it. But <laughs> but one thing that you did is took a look at what we know about the, the effect of past years in which we've had CRs and how that tends to affect quarterly spend. Tell us a bit about that, because it's probably instructive, at least to some extent, for what's going to happen in 24. Yeah. So what we see with past years when we look at quarterly spending is spending tends to really happen more towards the end of the year. So you're seeing more happening in Q3 and Q4 when it comes to quarterly spend. About 19 to 21% of annual spend um, happened when operating under the continuing resolution. And then you see the rest of it happening once everything's actually passed in their appropriations. Um, 2019 is that weird outlier because we had partial appropriations that were approved at the beginning of the fiscal year um, for labor, HHS, and their UC spending. Nobody else was spending until later in the year when the second round of appropriations happened in February, which is what we may be looking at right now. Um, potentially. And, and then last thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of overall trends was um, participation uh, in contracting. Looks like a lot more dollars, but fewer companies basically, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely what we're seeing, um, but it's nothing to be discouraged about, but it is a trend that we're seeing due to some outlying factors. There's the category management push, right? So they're trying to consolidate more. They are trying to uh, remove duplicative efforts. Everything's supposed to be streamlined. Because of that, what we see is the government is doing a lot more consolidation in their contracts. They are choosing to procure things under already existing contracts. They're not having these new competitions as much anymore. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is there is a lot more compliance 
regulations that are coming out, right? You have CMMC now. Um, I was doing a report back a while about the infrastructure bill. So if you look at architecture, engineering, and construction requirements, um, there's a lot more that's coming out now with the infrastructure bill where you have to use particular materials. You have to do a particular practice. It has to be renewable. So all of those things while great, are also expensive for vendors. So it does kind of push some vendors out to, you know, maybe not be able to participate or it's just slower on the uptake because they have to get all this compliance under their belt prior to even being able to compete. And then when it comes to the meat of the report, which is the top opportunities for 24, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that this is better suited for reading than than audio consumption. So people can read it on your website. But but let's let's try and do a summary if we can. What jumps out at you when you look at those top opportunities for 24? What's most in, what's most interesting? Let's try and summarize a bit if we can. So what's interesting about this year's report is that it is a pretty even mix. Uh, it's a, you know about half and half defense and civilian, um, which we have been seeing for the past few years. A long time ago, we used to see a lot more heavyweight in defense opportunities, um, but slowly it sort of moved into where there's more civilian heavyweights in there. Um, part of that has to do with the lack of new requirements coming out as frequently. We're also seeing that there are recompetes and there's actually only one new requirement on the list um that's a new requirement for a construction opportunity for the department of navy um it's building a building so of course there's no incumbent on that it's new construction every single other requirement is a uh, requirement that they have procured in the past and it already has vendors who are working on it now that can be looked at sometimes as a negative aspect, right? Because it might be harder to get in on these contracts. You think there's someone who already has their footing, someone always has been doing this work. However, there's a benefit maybe, right? You can you can glean a lot of information from historical information then, right? You have access to past solicitations. You can look at past performance. You can see where the money is going, who's getting these task orders, who's not. Um, and to to sort of bring that together with what we were talking about earlier with the category management stuff and then sort of streamlining and have fewer and fewer new requirements, a good way around that is subcontracting, right? So even if you can't get into prime, you can get into subcontract on um, a lot of these larger requirements. Right. And all of these are unrestricted, right? There's there's going to be more opportunities that are that are set aside, but these are each one of these is unrestricted. Each one of these is unrestricted, which is important just to take a step back. So the report that I particularly do is the top 20 unrestricted. We do have three additional reports. Um, we have a top 10 small business report, which solely focuses on those small business kind of requirements. We also focused um, a top 10 report on professional services on that industry, primarily because IT does tend to dominate this top 20 list since it tends to have the most money. Um, so we have a professional services. We also have an architecture, engineering, and construction list that is a top 10 list as well. And all of those are put together in a similar fashion. So we're looking specifically at what requirements are going to be coming out specifically in fiscal year 2024. Um, if there's sort of a bellwether requirement that helps us get an idea of what the trend is moving forward for that year and beyond. And then also um, we're looking at obviously how much the estimated value is, be it um, from past spending or from total estimated ceiling and using those sort of higher value opportunities. Um, so actually getting back to your point about there really not being that many new requirements here, is that a negative sign for companies this year? I don't think so at all. Um, 
I would definitely keep a positive outlook. You know, there is still money to be spent here. These contracts are worth millions of dollars. The government's still going to be spending money, right? Um, where you may want to step back is if there are not as many new requirements, um, there's not as many things going on, there is a slowdown because of the continuing resolutions. So take your time, get familiar with the compliance requirements, be smart about what you are going to pursue, um, get to know your customer and exactly what they're looking for. And like we said earlier, with the consolidation, get familiar with subcontracting and how to do that, look into teaming opportunities. Um, and certainly not a time to be discouraged. It just might take a little bit more legwork right now. Ashley Sanderson is a senior research manager at Dell Tech. We'll post a link to their annual list of top contracting opportunities at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes and that they are opportunities to learn and so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.